Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. This week, I'm thrilled to have on Jay Leno, one of the greatest stand-up comics of all time, one of the biggest TV hosts in the history of TV hosts. Also a guy who, by his own admission, never got much love from critics. The guy who got cast more or less as the villain in the late-night battles with David Letterman and Conan O'Brien. I'll talk with him about those battles. It's in the past now, and he's more reflective. But... It's still hard to pierce the veil. It's hard to know how he feels about that stuff. One thing, though, is crystal clear when it comes to Jay Leno. He loves to work above pretty much everything else. So it won't surprise you to learn that he's spending what could be his retirement making a television show. It's called Jay Leno's Garage. It airs on CNBC. And it's not by accident that Jay has been doing this as long as he has. He's still a disarming interview, still charming and witty and quick on his feet. He's hilarious. He is very, very good at what he does. Here's an episode from the newest season of Jay Leno's Garage. He's talking with Charlie Sheen, and they're chatting about Charlie's role in the 1986 car movie, The Wraith. As I remember, you're a kid who dies, but you come back as a car. It's, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me still. But it's a true story. It's obviously a true story, <laughs> yes. Yeah, and I've come back as this car, but as a spirit, as a wraith, right. to to seek revenge on the road gang that killed me. Yes. Of course, yes. all right, okay. And my, my brother works at a burger joint. My ex-love interest is now with the leader of the gang. So this is based on your own family. Exactly. 100, 100%, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Now, because this is about the time Platoon was coming out, right? Yes. And now, of course, the Academy Award-winning film. Yeah, I, I shot this in a pit stop on my way to the Philippines to make Platoon. Right. So this came out in the theaters uh, before Platoon right. came out. And right. Oliver actually went, Oliver Stone went and saw it in the movie theater. Oh, he did. And called me so angrily afterwards. <laughs> Why, do you think this is going to ruin Platoon? He, he says, you cannot do films like this. What is this movie about? What are you, a car? Are you a car? And perhaps you've ruined Platoon. <laughs> uh, Jay Leno, welcome to Bullseye. I'm really glad to have you on the show. Thanks. That was probably the most enthusiastic thank you I've ever received on sure, this program. Sure, well, I'm enthusiastic to be here. I appreciate <laughs> it. Well, I'm I, I'm absolutely delighted that you've arrived at my door in costume as Jay Leno. That's right. That's right. Um, you're wearing your signature denim on denim. Yeah, you know, people say why this. Well, it's just because people see you, and there's a joke that, like, one year as a joke, the writers gave me 52 shirts, one for every day of the week. <laughs> Oh, okay. Thanks, you guys. Okay. Okay. And then, like, every sponsor, oh, we know you like the, oh, we gave you a denim thing with our Coca-Cola put emblem here. And then I cut the emblem off and just wear the shirt. So, uh, ultimately, I have, uh, at last count, 518 of these shirts and, I think, 412 pairs of the jeans. I'm not I'm not going to lie to you, Jay. I've never met you in person. This is the first time I've right. met you in person. You look very handsome in the shirt. Why, thank you. Thank you very much. You look I, very I, handsome. I, I, it compliments your eyes, especially well, with this silver fox thing you've got well, going on. Yes, it works yes, for you. Yes, and that's really intentional, the silver fox thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 
Did you, uh, you're famous for driving around Los Angeles in unusual motor vehicles. I guess that's true. Did you come here in a regular car or an unusual no, car? No, I came here in a regular car because you, you don't bring anything unusual to downtown LA. Believe me. No, no, you don't. <laughs> that's only for Burbank. Yeah, yeah, it's really just so Burbank. Yeah, my cars leave, go in a big circle, and then go back to the original location. So, I, you know, if I don't know where I'm going, I just take a regular car. I think a lot of people who are automotive enthusiasts are into, like, the most powerful, fastest car or the car that projects the image of the most power and fastness, whether it's, you know, an Italian sports car or, yeah. a, a, you know, an American muscle car. Right, right. You're very well known for loving cars from uh, the brass era? Oh, I like every kind of... I like noble failures. I like cars that were ahead of their time, in their time, that didn't quite make it, you know. Uh, yeah, I like anything unusual like that. You know, my a buddy of mine, he lives in uh, he lives in Holland. He has my favorite car. It was It's called the Swan Car. It was built for an Indian Maharaja, and it has a giant swan head, but the swan head is very angry, and <laughs> it shoots boiling water on pedestrians if they if they get in front of it. You press it and it goes, <laughs> and, and out of the mouth comes a stream of scalding hot water. People, <laughs> people would literally. So he would drive this thing with this big swan head in the front, and when people got too close to the car, he just pressed the button, and this boiling hot water would come out and scald the the the, the, the plebeians of the street there a horrible thing but it just it just made me laugh that's a great car to have perfect for la really you grew up to first and second generation immigrant parents right your father uh was scott your mother was scottish my mother and your father was, italian my mother's born in scotland my father's italian yes. the funniest combination it is very unusual i mean this the scots are known for their uh you know, cold weather hardiness. Yeah, you know, the funny part was when I would go to my Aunt Nettie's house, that was my mother's sister. Would you like a scone, Jamie? I like a scone. And she'd give me this stale biscuit and then she'd say, would you like a Coca-Cola, Jamie? And she kept it in the cupboard. And she'd say to me, you know, Jamie, it tastes the same whether it's cold or warm. It tastes the same. You know, it's a refrigerator that costs money. It's silly to put Coca-Cola in the refrigerator. And then she'd pour me this Coke, and all the fizz would be coming out of it as she poured it. And I'd get this stale biscuit, you know? And it was like horrible. Then i go to the Italian side, and oh, my God, the lasagna and meatballs. And it was funny because I was always pulled in two directions, you know? When I was a little kid, the Scotch people, they would go, Jamie, Jamie, look at the waste. Jamie, the Italian people, there's only eight people here. There must be 35 meatballs. That's crazy, Jamie, to waste food like that. It's a terrible thing. You know, and then the Italians would pull me aside. The Scotch people, they're all cheap, Jamie. Don't worry about that. But here's $5, you know. And and both sides love me equally, I guess, you know. But it was just funny to watch them each try to win me over with their own particular philosophy of, of, of how life was and how you should live your life. And it, it, it was just a, just a funny experience. Just uh, this is why this current situation with the immigrant thing just makes me so angry. You know, living in America makes you inherently lazy, and you always need that new blood to come in all the time. When I used to go jaywalking, you know, we'd knock on doors and ask people questions. I remember went to one house, and the grandfather opened the door who spoke only Spanish. And he was dressed, although he was in his house, he had a sport coat on. Not expensive or anything, but he was dressed nicely. And then his son, who spoke Spanish and English, came to the door to explain to his father. And he was dressed kind of like I dress. 
And then I met his teenage son who had like a FU t-shirt on and some kind of hat and he spoke no Spanish and he had some video game in his hand and wasn't paying attention. And it just made me laugh to watch this degeneration <laughs> as you become more American, you get seduced by pizza and hamburgers and cars and rock and roll. And just to watch it sort of frivolously, frivolously you know, flit away, you know. And it, it just, it just I, I always remember that. It just made me laugh, you know. You had an older brother who wa- went to Yale Law. Yeah, my brother's very was smart. Was in the yeah. service right, and yeah, yeah. so on and so forth. And he was 10 years older than you, if I remember. Right, right. right. It's going to be... What are you going to do with Jay? I remember my parents having that discussion. What are you going to do with Jay? You know, I was like, because <laughs> I was not, I, I was not a, I was not a good student. In fact, when, when I was at high school, a guidance counselor calls my mother in. And she says, "I'm sitting there." She goes, "Mrs. Leno, let me ask you: Have you ever thought of taking Jay out of school?" She goes, "No, I want to take Jay out of school. I would, well, he works at McDonald's, doesn't he? You know, they have that McDonald's University. He could go to. School. They would teach him how to make change." I'm going, "Hey, I'm in the room." Hey, hello. And then he said something that to this day makes me laugh. He said, you know, Mrs. Leno, education is not for everyone. <laughs> I'm thinking, hey, what are you doing? So when I got The Tonight Show, I actually invited Mr. Neal, who was my guidance counselor at the time, to come sit in the audience. And I singled him out and I told that story. It was just very funny. <laughs> that doesn't sound funny to me, Jay. Oh, it was, I mean, it was funny. It's funny in your retelling, but it does not sound like a funny thing to have experienced. Oh, it's please. It's all right. It's you know. I was always pretty off the cuff. I was never. I'm you know. I'm pretty thick skinned. So it was. It just made me laugh. I'm sitting there. You know, Mrs. Leno. Education's not for everyone. I go. Hey, hey. I'm in the room. <laughs> but I mean, like, were you even thick skinned? Like, as a God knows, I wasn't that. I'm not that thick skinned now. But I certainly well, wasn't when I was a teenager. I mean, I'm sure it affected me more then. That it, well, I put it this way: it's it's funny in the telling after you've been successful. This is true. I'm sure if 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 I was you know digging dishes and then <laughs> the guidance counselor told me, <laughs> and then the guidance counselor told me to go dig ditches. You know, how did you feel about it then, though? Oh, I don't really remember. It was just another. Sort of water off the back type of thing. All right, okay, fine. My mother, you know, you got to do better. Okay, mom, I'll do better in school. You know, yeah, one of those deals, you know. I mean, it seems like you really, I mean, particularly for a comedian, you know, I think there are a lot of hardworking folks in show business. You know, show mm-hmm. business wouldn't exist without a ton of hard work. But right. I think it's it, particularly for a stand-up, like you really committed your life to hard work early. Um, yeah, I mean, I was, I mean, like I said, you have to work twice as hard as the other kids to get the same thing. And I would see that, you know, I would go down to New York, maybe I would drive down four nights a week, five nights a week out of Boston to audition at comedy clubs. And you like, when, when you were in co- college at Emerson? Or? Yeah, when I was at college. And you'd line up at like six o'clock to get an 11 o'clock spot. And I remember sitting in line. And guys in front of me would go, screw this, man, I'm not standing. And they'd walk out. I'd go, good, I move up. Okay, thank you. And that always worked for me. And I realized as I got older, you know, it's not that I'm any smarter. It's just that most people don't have the patience or the attitude or whatever to stick this out. And that's, you know, I always looked at show business as a business, not as a as a party thing, you know. I mean, I would, when I was hosting The Tonight Show, every night you go home and you write the next day's monologue that night. You don't go to Laker games. You don't go to movies. You don't go to premieres. You just write the jokes. And when I would watch competitors, for the most part, they would do jokes 
for the first couple of months, and then gradually they wouldn't have a monologue. How y'all doing tonight? Woo! Everybody good? Yeah. Yeah, we, we got a show for you tonight. You know, they, but they really weren't saying anything. To me, I realized it was never about me. It was about the jokes. I always remember one guy said to me, you know, I don't really like you, but uh, I like some of the jokes you tell. They're pretty funny. I said, okay, great. And then I realized it's about the product. If they don't like you, well, that's too bad. You try to make them like you, but if they don't like you, hopefully they'll like the product. And that's what always worked for me. When you were coming up in stand-up in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. uh, Carson was pretty much a kingmaker. Like the, oh, yeah, the, exactly. The king of everything. He was, yeah. Did you uh, admire him as a performer as much as I I've always heard did. Some... I always liked any comedian that looked normal and was funny without props. You know, I was never a big fan of the flower that squirts water in the lapel and all that kind of crap, you know. Like zaniness. Yeah, zany, wacky. I like people who just sort of started talking and, oh, wow, this is really funny. You know, this is really good. You know, you know. And that's, Carson is shockingly, I mean, for somebody like he retired when I was a kid. So right. I only have like vague memories gotcha. of having watched him on TV a few times at, when I like when he was on TV. But watching his work now, I'm struck by what a cool presence he is oh, very for much so. being the host of the most important show. And I don't just mean, I don't mean like necessarily like. Uh, well, see, don't forget before him. Comedians were usually funny looking. Right. Or if not funny looking, odd looking. Like like Rodney, uh, like uh, you know, Henny Youngman, uh, Milton Berle with the mugging and the faces and all. He was had a boyish charm that really worked. He could, you know, back in the day he could sell what you would call a racy joke. Something nobody else could get away with, he could get away with it because he had that sort of impish boyish charm, you know. No, he's very, very good. And a lot of times he didn't get the credit. You know, people always said to me, well, when Johnny did it, there were only three networks. He was the only thing on. No, they put everything against him, whether it was Merv Griffin and there was Keith Brazil and, I mean, the new Jack Parr and, I mean, all these people. And nobody nobody could take him out. He was He was really, really the best. Did you think of him that way at the time? Oh, I thought he was very good. Yeah, I thought he, he was the one I admired most. I mean, I I remember at my high school graduation saying, I'm going to go to California and hopefully be hosted the Tonight Show. Yeah, right. I said, no, that's what I want to do. You know, everybody thought I was crazy. And so at the reunion, oh, I was a big hero. <laughs> I mean, that is crazy. That's a crazy plan. It is a crazy plan. It, it worked for you. <laughs> well, you know, yeah, <laughs> that is a crazy. They're not it, wrong it, to think that's well, crazy. It did work for me. But, you know, it, it, it's it's like if you have a thousand people throwing dice in Vegas, eventually one guy is going to, whoa, and he's going to think there's some magical thing here. Because he he made it all the way through, you know. And I was kind of lucky that way. We'll continue my interview with Jay Leno after the break. Still to come, more Tonight Show intrigue. Stay with us. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Squarespace. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform to build an online presence and run your business. Create your company's website using customizable layouts, along with features including e-commerce functionality and mobile editing. And Squarespace offers built-in search engine optimization. Go to squarespace.com NPR for a free trial. When you're ready to launch, use the offer code NPR to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. 
Traumbulente is back with a brand new season of stories from all over Latin America and across the U.S. We kick things off with a voice that some of you may have heard. Dios mío, este hombre es mi doble exacto. Oh, ese perro tiene la cola peluda. The rise and fall of one of Latin America's most famous voiceover artists and the industry that crumbled around him. Traumbulente from NPR. Listen and subscribe now. Hello there, ghouls and gals. It is I. April Wolf. I'm here to take you through the twisty, scary, heart-pounding world of genre cinema on the exhilarating program known as Switchblade Sisters. The concept is simple. I invite a female filmmaker on each week and we discuss their favorite genre film. Listen in closely to hear past guests like the Babadook director, Jennifer Kent, Winter's Bone director, Deborah Granick, and so many others every Thursday on MaximumFun.org. Tune in if you dare. <laughs> it's actually a very thought-provoking show that deeply explores the craft and philosophy behind the filmmaking process while also examining film through the lens of the female gaze. So, like, you should listen. Switchblade Sisters. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm in the studio with Jay Leno, the longtime host of The Tonight Show, now the host of Jay Leno's Garage. It's in its fifth season on CNBC. How did you uh, get the job as guest host of The Tonight Show? How did I get the job? Yeah. I mean, uh, obviously, you were a very well-respected stand-up comic there at the lot time. Of, there, and, there, and, there were a yeah. lot of guest hosts. I remember at the time, they were... There was about eight or nine people guest hosting. And most of them had the same manager. And the manager called me up and he said, listen, we're going to go to the network and uh, we're going to ask for $25,000 a show to host. And I said, you know, I'm asking for $518 a show. That was scale. He goes, well, that's stupid. I go, well, I don't know. That's what he, he goes, look, we can get it. Yeah, $25,000 a show. Okay. Now, all the guest hosts were about equal to each other. We're all doing fine rating-wise. Well, I knew Johnny's company paid for this show. So Leno's doing okay. What's his rating? It's okay. And what's this guy getting? Okay. This guy wants 25000 and Leno wants 518 Why don't... Uh, why don't we go with Leno? <laughs> you know, I mean, it was very simple. It was very simple. I never looked at, I never once asked for a raise on TV. I figured I was any good. I always lived on the money I made as a stand-up comedian. That was my thing. That, that's what I do for a living. That's my profession. If I'm lucky enough to get a job on TV, I will bank that money and I will save it and I will use it somewhere else. But I'm going to live on what I make as a performer. Because the day you think, the day you're not hungry anymore is the day you're not funny anymore. The day you're, you're, you're out of it, you know. So even though I had a ton of money in the bank, I always acted like I was broke. On the road, I'd live on my $25 a day per diem, and I would just sort of do that. And, and I mean, it's just psychological. You know, if I, didn't, if I didn't work as a comedian, I didn't think I made anything because the TV money would just automatically go into some bank account somewhere or something. I, I know this sounds stupid. It's, it sounds No, ridiculous. it's totally ridiculous. But, but it is ridiculous. <laughs> it is ridiculous. But, <laughs> it, but it worked for me. And then, I understand. I mean, what, what I understand is like uh, the idea that, I mean, uh, doing comedy is ridiculous. So. Right. I mean, I I really understand the idea that in order to do something this hard, and it really is hard, you have to have 
a little bit of the fear of God. Like you have to be you have to be running from a dragon to get to top speed a little bit. Well, yeah, that's probably true. But you know, Seinfeld and I have this discussion all the time. I remember Jerry and I were talking one time and said, "What if we took a vacation and we liked it? Then we're screwed." That's right. Then you're screwed. Now, if you're sitting on a beach, you know, I mean, obviously there are downsides to this. I mean, I live in Beverly Hills. I have a pool I've really never been in because every time I get to the pool, I hear that Boston voice. What, what are you, Mr. Cool now? Or you sit in the pool in Beverly Hills? Oh, you do, huh? You got nothing broken here? You got nothing need fixing, really? Well, you going to sit in the pool? That's why people go by, you wave. You sit in... No, you're right, you're right. I, I cannot bring myself to go in this pool. And it's just become to the point where it's, I just feel as if that's the ultimate. Not, I, now, now you've sold out. Now you're lazy. You're sitting in the pool. I mean, so. the detail that I remember most vividly from reading The Late Shift was right. the detail of your wife going on vacation without you. <laughs> Well, no, I send her to, I'll send her in a whole graduating class to Europe. But to me, it's like a bad day at Disneyland. I can't stand it. But but it's not like, no, but see, I have a great marriage. We've been married 40 years, and, and I love her, and it's wonderful. So it's not like, oh, but she likes, to, to me, that's just. Right. I, no, I mean, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that you would, that your wife would go on vacation without right. you because you don't like each other, but simply because you just don't see the value of going on vacation. I don't, I don't see the value of going on vacation. <laughs> You're like, sorry, honey, I'm going to do a stand-up gig in Fresno. Uh, I know. And what am I doing that's worth... Well, see, that's the thing, though, because when I was broke, I was really broke. And I used to sleep in an alley off 44th and 9th, right in the middle of Hell's Kitchen. And I can remember seeing through the alleyway Dyke's Lumberyard, which I believe is still there. And I remember sleeping in that alley and... It was one of those alleys, and believe me, Hell's Kitchen was way worse in the 70s than it is now. And it would, and prostitutes would bring Johns into the alley, and I'd be like sleeping in a corner. You'd just hear the most horrible, I said, and I, I remember just sitting there crying my eyes out one night, just saying, oh man, is this my life now, really? That's what I did when I just sleep in alleys, and I just, I, I, you know, I just thought if I ever make it, I am not going to turn down jobs. I'm not going to be able to. Speak. How much to pay? No, that's not enough. I'm sorry. You know, I, I never think, what am I doing on a Tuesday that's worth this kind of money? So that's probably the low self-esteem thing. That's where it comes in, and that probably aids in your success. When you were guest hosting the mm-hmm. Tonight Show, did you have in your mind, I'm going to host the Tonight Show when Johnny Carson retires? No, I thought that would be a nice thing. I mean, I mean, you had told your <laughs> on the way out of high school. You're like later well, guys. Everything, I'm off every, to- everything was sort of going that way, but no, no. I mean, I thought that would be nice if it happens. I mean, I became the permanent guest host, which was a lot of time because Johnny was off 15 weeks a year. So oh, okay, that worked out. So it seemed like the logical thing. Dave was doing his show, and you know people always think, "Oh, you stole the show." I, I didn't. I was the per- I was the guest host for five years. I was on every night. And in NBC's mind, they had a successful show at twelve thirty, extremely successful with Dave, and a successful show at eleven thirty with me guest hosting. If they pulled me out and moved Dave down, well, I have no choice but to go somewhere else, or they could keep. Oh, I mean, I think. In some ways, Dave was a victim of his own success that way because that's—I think—that was the network's thinking. There was no hoo-hoo, you know, 
because it's all their choice. I want to play a clip of you on the Letterman's show, the late night. Uh, okay, not the late show. That was my favorite time of my life doing that show with Dave. And I think you're. I mean, I uh, you know I was a kid then and have only watched it on you know bootleg VHS tapes that right. people sent me in 1999 or whatever. Right. But uh, and these days a lot of it's up on YouTube. Right. But you know you were many many people's fave on that show because the two of you well the were funny so so consonant like you really well the fun part was together. dave was an equal with johnny i would always call him mr carson thank you mr carson now jack call me johnny yeah i, I just I, I didn't grow up in an era where your parents friends you called them by their first name it right. was just awkward and i couldn't go to johnny hey nice tie pal you know he's like yes it's from my clothing collection yeah yeah my very popular clothing collection with letterman i i see i was i always knew what used to drive letterman nuts and my favorite thing i would always get like a huge meatball sandwich or something and i'd hide in the hall when i saw dave coming down to makeup i'd just stand in the hall eat this he'd go how can you're on in a 10 minute. How can you eat that? Oh, Dave, it's delicious, Dave. And then I would bring the meatball sandwich out on the set, and Dave would be, you know, hilarious. Because Dave is truly awkward. I mean, hilariously awkward. You know, I mean, the difference between Dave and I, when I made the Tonight Show my own, we brought the audience right up close, and I would shake hands with people in the crowd. I remember Dave had a really funny bit when I said, I want to shake hands with people in the crowd. And he, he was behind a big plastic wall and he put his hands through the hole in the wall with two gloves in it and then he would shake hands with the gloves with people i mean that was the difference that was his version of making fun of what i did you know and it was very funny and he very famously on in the course of his program kind of winnowed the number of staff members with whom he interacted down to the down to the barest which honestly as the owner of a company with 20 some employees I love all my employees. They're wonderful people, amazing people, including the ones who are sitting right on the other side of that glass. Right. But like, I totally understand. Like, I, there's a part of me that would rather just work under my desk so no one can look at me. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like at home with my dog on my yeah. lap. Anyway, let's play, uh, let's play uh, Jay Leno, my guest, uh, on Late Night with David Letterman in the mid-1980s. Yeah, what do you do for entertainment when you're on the road? It's lonely, isn't it? Oh, it's lonely. It's. <laughs> and I saw the other day, uh, Rambo. Have you done this? Who? Oh, come on, do the genocide. Let's do it, everybody. <laughs> Have you seen this movie? I haven't seen it yet. How about you? Well, you before I saw it. the movie, I read the book, which yeah. wasn't actually a book. It was a two-page, two-page pamphlet I got from the John Birch Society. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Just kind of a simple thing. Rambo opens fire. Page two, the end. You know. Not much. <laughs> I tell you something. No. You know what I love? I love when foreign countries get very self-righteous about the United States. Like England now wants to ban Rambo yeah. because they feel the movie condones American-style violence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what I think Stallone should do is maybe go back and reshoot some of the scenes in a soccer uniform, make it a little easier for them to understand. <laughs> I completely forgotten all that material. <laughs> it's actually pretty funny. Huh? Yeah, it's pretty solid. I, I really like, I mean... You know, genocide is fundamentally tragic, et cetera. Right. Um, but I like the idea that genocide is something that let's do. Yeah. Well, <laughs> like, see, I, the gang's all here. The real trick is to know Letterman's <laughs> sensibilities. And Letterman is an excellent wordsmith. He was always a great wordsmith. And to me, I always get annoyed at comics. 
I have nothing against obscenity. It's fine. I just find it boring. I don't find it as a punchline. If somebody calls somebody an a-hole, well, it's not really funny. So when Dave, I'd always try to come up with names that would I know he would laugh at. I said, you know, Dave, when you go to the carnival and they have these syphilitic druids running the drive, running the rides, they, they have no shirts on, and he would go, syphilitic druids. That's right, David. And, and, and he and I would then just go back and forward over that all the time. Maybe the greatest connoisseur of like a super flat word. Just oh, like oh, yeah, that. Dave was always that way. I mean, uh, yeah, I remember one time we were talking. I never even got to the punchline, but it was. I said, you know, Dave, I was out at the old Manson place the other day just to see some of the guys. Oh, the old Manson place. Oh, you know, it hasn't changed, Dave, you know, since 69. And we just sort of went out, and Dave kept, you know, repeating what I would say over and over again. It was just very funny. It was a lot of fun. I don't know how many people are close with David Letterman, but the two of you had known each other for a really long time and were... Mm -hmm at the very least, friendly colleagues. Did the yeah. two of you ever talk about The Tonight Show before Carson retired? No, I think I, I think Dave took it pretty hard when he didn't get it. I think uh, so, too. Uh, it's a oh, fair yeah, characterization. Uh, yeah, oh, sure, sure. Yeah, it was one of those... You know, it's interesting. I like to think it worked out well because he got the critical acclaim and I got the popular vote. And we each left it with something. Okay, I was the guy, you know, that got the highest rating, nice number. Dave was the acerbic guy that was sharp, and all the critics loved him the best. And that's okay. I mean, that, that's fine. You can't have everything. But, yeah, I, I would think that was extremely difficult for him. I don't think he hated me. I think he hated the way it turned out, and I became the butt of a lot of the jokes and stuff. And I mean, uh, what I, the reason I asked if the two of you had ever talked about it before Carson retired is because it feels to me only having read about it, you were there, uh -huh. um, but it feels to me only having read about it that like it was, there was an absence of communication between two friends about something who shared this same goal of which only one person could have it. And maybe you thought, you know, this is my dream. I hope they pick me. And he thought maybe that they you know, they had already implicitly picked him. Maybe you thought they had already implicitly well, picked I, you I, since I, you were the permanent guest host. I think what happened was, I think Dave did not get along with the suits at NBC. Yeah. And I think there was a lot of, uh, he would mock them on the air and all that kind of stuff, and they took it pretty seriously. I remember one executive said to me, you know, I didn't want to put up another 20 years of that. And I went, oh, okay, I guess that must have, you know. And Jack Welsh was... Uh, a pretty Jack Welch was running NBC at the time. He was the head guy at GE, and he made the decisions. And he would go pretty hard at the company in general. It wasn't like you know, I think in later years he would joke about the CBS primetime lineup when right, it was right, unsuccessful right. in a kind of uh, relatively gentle way. I mean, right. mo most people aren't mocking their own network on right, their right, channel, but right. relatively gentle. But he would go pretty hard in the on late night at the company. In general. Right, right, right. Well, yeah, and, and I think that, that played a role in it, too. But ultimately, all of it comes down to finances. It's where they think they can make the most money, and that's really, it's a business decision. You know, the idea that one person, I would, well, you stole the show. I, well, if I'm so smart, how did I lose it in the first place? You know, I would always have these ridiculous, I would always read ridiculous theories that, the network had to pay me $150 million. No, they didn't, and they don't do that. You know, it's just the only thing I ever had that was different than anybody else had, 
I always had a pay and play contract, not pay or play. People love pay or play. Like, so if you don't work, they have to pay you. And my attitude was always if, if you don't work, you have no value to them. So they're just paying you to just go away, just get out of here. We don't even want you anymore. So I never took money for not working. So all my contract, if I had a five-year contract, they had to keep me on the air till it, till it played out. Was it hard to enjoy the fact that you had achieved the dream of teenage Jay Leno, given that you were surrounded by, you know, public weirdness, and especially given that it was an, with, you know, an old friend? Yeah, it was hard to, but I, again, I didn't, I never tried to believe the good stuff and I never tried to believe the bad stuff. So, I mean, you know what's funny? This is the greatest time of my life right now. I'm just having a ball because I'm a comedian now and I'm well known. When you start, most comedians will tell you, they'll say, it took me five minutes, but I got them. Oh, I was up there 20 minutes before I got them or I never got them. But there's always a time when you got them. Now, you got them the minute you walk out on stage. You just have to keep them, which is actually easier and 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 more and more fun. Yeah, I've done a lot of comedy shows for fans of mine. Yeah, uh, and it's a very different experience than when my comedy partner and I hosted a show at the Ice House for a month or two to, to strangers. You're like people who like you going in. It is a dramatically different right. But the affirmation of strangers is the greatest thing about being a comic. You don't want your friends in the audience. And radio, it's almost, it's not impossible to make the jump from radio to stand-up. But in some ways it is because in radio, my favorite thing is when I go to a town and, hey, Jay, the breakfast flakes, uh, they're going to open for you in the morning. You know, they do the morning zoo. They go, they go how long? They'll do 25 minutes. So I go, <laughs> you, you guys got, hey. Uh, Jay, we do five hours every morning, okay? <laughs> I think we can do 20 minutes. Okay, great. I'm sitting there. They're out there two minutes. Okay, please welcome Jay Leno. Jay, come on out. Because it's the exact opposite. It's, well, it's the opposite of having an act. Well, having an act is the economy of words. It's the ability to have a joke every six to nine seconds. But say between every six or nine seconds, anything longer than that, uh, boy, they get a little bored. So you've just got to keep it. Boom, boom, boom. And my favorite, okay, here's, when you hear a DJ, they would talk like this. You know, here in the United States of America, the greatest country in the world, by the way, I think we all agree with that. Or Kimmy would say, you know, here in the U.S. Okay, but you, as a DJ, you're watching the clock. You got five hours to fill. You just got to keep, you got to keep the words coming and whether they're funny or not, you've, just got to, you've got space to fill. As a stand-up, you've got to have jokes in every one of those spaces or you're just dead. You were following the most legendary late-night television host in American history when you took over The Tonight Show. Right. Um, and somebody that you, you know, personally admired and professionally admired. Was there, were there things that you thought are going to be the Jay Leno things about well, the, the Jay Leno is, Tonight Show? Well, the when I started... We were live, live for the first two or three weeks, which means no edit, no cue cards, no nothing. I just had to, I just memorized the monologue because it was, you know, it was, it was weird when I took over because there was a lot of animosity and 
uh, you know, I brought in kind of a different band and, uh, you know, uh, it was just, there was just a lot of animosity. And, and in some ways it was made especially tricky by the fact that I don't know whether we were following the Summer Olympics or whatever it was, but there was some reason we were live, live. So the monologue had to be within six or 10 seconds of when it needed to be. And, and all of that, you know, so you had to keep all those balls in the air at the same time. So it, yeah, it was, it was tricky. It was tricky, but I, I, I like pressure. I, I work well under pressure. I like having a deadline. I like that. I like pressure. What did you think was going to be different about the way that you did things? I had no idea. I had no idea. You just go out and you do it. You try and find the things that work for you. Uh, the headlines always work for me. The jaywalking worked for me. Initially, it didn't work because I was doing Johnny's show on Johnny's stage. And in those days, the Tonight Show set was here. And then about 30 to 40 feet away, you had these seats that literally went straight up, like in a Broadway theater, almost like you're hanging off. And it was such a weird thing to look up, to look up in this in the air and see the audience. I mean, look normal on TV because Johnny's head would be high, but you, everybody was up there, and and I just felt uncomfortable. And when we went to New York, I said to Don Omar, I said, "Can we just move the people? Literally, put them on the stage." So when I walked out, I could shake hands and I could, you know, and I could see people's face and see their eyes. And, and it was, and suddenly it became much more normal to me. And that's what we did. We eventually built the set so I had real close contact with people when necessary. I mean, you're a much warmer performer than Carson ever was. And I don't mean that as a criticism of Carson. I just no, talked no, about I, how amazing it was, how cool he was. Yeah, but like your. Well, I generally like people. You know, I like to talk to people. I find people pretty funny. I I am a very optimistic person. I think ultimately, people do the right thing. I know that sounds naive, but I, yeah, you know, I read this thing once that one in every six hundred people is a criminal, and if you live in a village of six hundred people, you don't catch the guy. You got a crime wave, because <laughs> this guy's committing crime every day, and we haven't caught him. And it seems like. Everybody's evil. Everybody's terrible. No, it's that guy. It's just that. Get that guy, and you're fine. And that's my. Uh, that's where I've always been. You know, I always. Y you play an audience like it's an orchestra. You learn how to read a crowd. You know, I remember once I had a Hillary Clinton joke. I, ah, it escapes me what it was when she was running for president. And I didn't like the laugh it got because the audience was laughing. I felt they were laughing at it because she was a woman and not because she was a candidate. It was the kind of joke where I went, I would hear, ha, 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 you know, like a real male guttural. I said, oh, man, I, don't, I, just, I just didn't like. So I took the joke out, and I was better for it, you know? And that's what it's like. You, you learn how to, how to play an audience like it's an orchestra. You want to have, to me, the perfect audience is male, female, black, white, every kind of, there's, no, every, there's every kind of person there to keep you honest. So you're not doing gay jokes because there's a gay group over here or female jokes. The worst kind of audience is when you do like an all-male business conference and it's all just guys. And it, that's the worst because I tailor my act to appeal to just a little bit of everybody, you know. I'm a very happily married guy. I talk about that. So that now I get a certain warmth of feel from this part of the crowd and you just learn you it, it is it is like an orchestra you look out and you see this vast and you try to get a certain kind of laugh a certain feeling going and people walk away from the show and they like you because there are a lot of comedians that people think are real funny 
but they don't like the person. They just think, that guy's got some funny jokes, but man, he seems like a mean guy. Uh, well, and that's fine if that's your persona, but that's not mine. You know, the idea is if you if they like you and you have a joke that's not that funny, they'll roll with you. They'll turn it over till you get to the next joke, if that makes any sense. You did 12 minutes to 14 minutes of monologue jokes the whole time you were hosting The Tonight right. Show. That's a quadrillion jokes. Well, the thing you realize is there are only 18 guests in the whole world that mean anything, and everybody else is just filler, reality star people or whatever. And I always tell people whenever they... I, I know some people have had daytime talk shows that failed. The smartest one was Ellen, because Ellen is a comic. She comes out, and she has something to say. There's value in her words, because people know, if we watch this, we will laugh. And inevitably, they are right, you know? That's what it is. You've got, you've got to entertain them. No one's there to see you. They're there to see the product that you manufacture. We'll wrap up with Jay Leno when we come back from a quick break. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Smart Water. Smart Water is for the curious drinkers, the ones who are always looking for ways to make things a little bit better. That's why Smart Water created two new ways to hydrate, Smart Water Alkaline with 9 plus pH and Smart Water Antioxidant with added selenium. And now you can order Smart Water by saying, Alexa, order Smart Water. Smart Water, that's pretty smart. The world is complicated. But knowing the past can help us understand it so much better. That's where we come in. I'm Randa Abdel-Fattah. I'm Ramtin Arablouei, and we're the hosts of Throughline, NPR's history podcast. Every week, we'll dig into forgotten stories from the moments that shaped our world. Throughline from NPR. Listen and subscribe now. <sighs> There's nothing quite like sailing in the calm international waters on my ship, the SS Biopic. <laughs> Avast! It's actually pronounced biopic. No, you dingus! It's biopic! Who the hell says that? It's biopic! Because it's the, the words word bi- for biography biology. and picture. If you... All right, that is enough. Ahoy, I'm Dave Holmes. I'm the host of the newly rebooted podcast, formerly known as International Waters, designed to resolve petty but persistent arguments like this. How? by pitting two teams of opinionated comedians against each other with trivia and improv games, of course. Winner takes home the right to be right. What podcast be this? It's called Troubled Waters, where we disagree to disagree. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm here with Jay Leno. He is, of course, he's Jay Leno. He hosted The Tonight Show for decades. He wears denim shirts with blue jeans. He likes cars. He's hosting a show on CNBC these days called Jay Leno's Garage. It is a lot of fun. Let's get back into the interview. When your first run as the host of The Tonight Show Mm -hmm. ended, you ended up hosting a 10 o'clock show before The Tonight Show that was hosted by Conan O'Brien. And by then, I think you had made some like professional changes in your life in an attempt to avoid, shit. like, I mean, that you had, like, you you didn't, you weren't, you didn't have an agent manager in. Oh, I hadn't had an agent manager for twenty five years. Oh, okay, and that was all gone by ninety two. Okay, uh, and I think part of your goal there was to avoid ac- the kind of acrimony and pain that had uh, happened previously in your career. Well, part, Is of, that part fair? of it was to avoid somebody speaking 
for me. Right. To me, I, I don't really care about the money. What do we got to do to settle this? What, what is the problem? I, I'm one of those people, I don't like to go on stage unless every problem is solved. Every problem is solved, I have a clear conscience, I have a clear head, you know. I, I'm a believer in karma. I believe what you give out, you get back. Uh, every time I've done something wrong or something against my nature, it's always come back at me tenfold in a horrible way. And I, and I always try to avoid that. So it's like, yeah, what do we got to do? I, I know I, even if I'm not at fault, look, I apologize. I'm sorry this happened. Can we move forward? Okay, thank you very much. Let's shake hands. And everything is dropped and forgotten. That's just my way. That's just an easier way. Because it's hard to do comedy when something's on your mind. If you feel you've really hurt somebody or caused somebody some pain, you want to get that settled. You want to get that cleared up before you before you take the stage. Did you anticipate the pain that came out of you taking that 10 o'clock show? No. What it was was... Uh, they were going to give that show. They, they'd come to me once. When, when, I'm just sitting there one day, and, oh, Conan Bryan's sitting there. Oh, okay, we, we want you gone. I say, but guys, I'm stuck here for five years. Okay. But, but, so you had it. in other words, you, you had it for people who don't remember or didn't know, you had a deal to, you had a, basically a five-year contract to finish uh, to do the Tonight Show. I think the idea and, and Conan was- Conan had a, Conan basically, to keep Conan around, they gave him a five-year contract with the promise that at the end of the five years, you right. will- Yeah, that makes sense. Take yeah. the Tonight Show. That's what it was. That's what it was, yeah, yeah. But then at, at, at the end of that, you took, a, you took a show at 10. Well, what it was, was uh, Conan was doing great at 12.30. And then Craig Ferguson came on. And then Craig Ferguson started to do well. In some cases, may have beaten, I don't know the actual numbers, but okay. Okay, then the network came to me and they said, uh, you think you'll go to ABC or something after this leaves? I said, well, I'm not gonna lie to you, they're talking to me, they want me to move over there. I said, how about a 10 o'clock show? I said, well, a 10 o'clock show won't work. <laughs> I don't think that'll work. And they said, well, I'll tell you what, We'll pay your staff for the next year and a half, whatever it is. Guarantee them everything. And everybody on my staff, I had had the same people for 22 years. I, I don't turn over writers. I don't turn over producers. You know, my thing is you treat people right, you can make a good army out of anybody. You can make a soldier out of anybody if you treat them properly. My thing, oh, I always got there at 7.30. I was the first one in, the last one out. And I always, my office was dead in the middle of the of the room. It wasn't. You know, Debbie, right. the executive producer, had the room with the bathroom and all that kind of stuff because I, I just sat down and I wrote jokes. And people saw that, oh, okay, then they appreciated the fact that I was putting in the same amount of time as they were. And anybody anybody could stop the train when I did it. They could just pull the cord and go, okay, what's the problem? Uh, you know, my apple got stolen out of the refrigerator. All right, let's take care of the apple. Okay, stop the Tonight Show. You know, you have some fun with it. Okay, we, but people, we treated everybody with respect. So when it came along, in fact, near the last couple of years, we we half the salary. Uh, I took a salary cut to keep everybody on board, so they all like that. And when they, when they heard if I took a ten o'clock show, they could all work for another year and a half. They said, "Would you do it?" And I said, "All right, let's do it." So we did it. But Fox or ABC? I mean, the, there there were other networks that would have sure. hired you to host an eleven o'clock show. I know, but you and know, would have brought would have gladly brought your staff with you as well. I'm sure. Well, no. See, my staff couldn't have gone because they had, they all had individual contracts with NBC, and they could have gone taken somewhere else. Or it, it wasn't that easy. And plus, 
I'm a very loyal person. I'm, you know, the czar you have is probably going to be better than the one you're going to get. And that was always my thing. I, I liked the executives I work with. The ones making the top decisions, I didn't know. But the ones that I had, all right, so okay. So I said, I'll do a 10 o'clock show. Okay, fine. So we did a clock show, and, and that, that starts another whole thing of problems. I got accused of, you know, because shows like Law and Order and stuff weren't on anymore, and then that was uh, that was my fault. And I was, I was well, so, I mean, this was a this was a big deal yeah. plan yeah. at NBC. This was a big swing for them, and yeah. their idea was their that, idea was to cut costs. Yeah, instead and they, of producing big dramas at ten o'clock, do an, an, an earlier version of the Tonight Show. I mean, I remember them. I I, I just happened to have read an article. Um, not happened to. I was researching for this. I interview. happened to read, I read an, an article. article. I read an article in the in the, maybe the New York Times or something from from the time that that quoted an, an NBC executive saying, like, look, don't don't quote me on this, but if he did a one point five, we'd still come out ahead. Right. Uh, which you know this was. When network television was still doing pretty good numbers, right, right. But their their idea was that because it was so much less expensive to produce, it would be, you know, you wouldn't have to, you know, you'd have to do pretty good, get a few million people to watch. But yeah, well, the thing that really screwed us over was the local affiliates complained because there's a bad lead into eleven o'clock news, so they wanted me to move the monologue to the end of the show, so. People would say, watch the monologue and then go right into the news. Well, that doesn't work. That yeah. was a stupid idea. So the whole thing sort of went down the tubes. And then uh, Conan Show was not doing that well either, which somehow was my fault, apparently. You know. Well, I mean, for this, I mean, for the, in part, I mean, in part because. Our lead in was It's terrible. a new show yeah. and he's trying to yeah. figure it out. Our, but also in part because, you know, for the same reason that the affiliates wanted a strong lead in for right. the news. Right, like there just right. were a lot fewer people watching a talk well, show than might have been watching Law and Order. But our numbers were, we had bad lead-ins when I was doing the Tonight Show. So I mean, that you know, when you get these shows, your the job is you're supposed to be able to right. pick it up on your own, you know. But Conan had been on the air for what five months before we came along, so the ratings were it opened initially well, but it it didn't hold on very well. So it it was an awkward time all around, I guess you call it. Did you ever talk to Conan about it? No, I never did. Uh, I don't really know him. It wasn't like Dave and I. I don't really know him. I always felt there was, you know, when I would watch the show, they would they had a character, Little Jay, and then they'd make fun of headlines and all this kind of stuff. I thought, okay, well, they can make fun of me. That's fine. You know, they're waiting for the day, you know. I went to Don Omeyer when Conan was on literally a week-to-week -week renewal, and I said, just pick the guy up for a year so they can relax, so everybody can do their job. He'll do fine. And he was funny. I, I liked Conan. I thought he was good. So I was as stunned as anybody when that whole thing, oh, you're being, really? Nobody said a word to me. And we never spoke about it. And that was, that was pretty much it. You know. If you had it to do over, would it have been better to just take the same money from ABC and do an 11 o'clock show up against Conan? I mean, you're probably, to some extent, still the bad guy in that situation because you're in no, competition no, with I Conan. Would, but You know, the nice thing about making mistakes is you learn from them. So I wouldn't change anything. People, oh, would you do this differently? Would you do this? No, because mistakes give you empathy for people. You know, I remember when I was... Uh, when I was watching the Cosby trials and all that stuff that was going on, and I hear these people say, these women are stupid, they should have known. Well, no, you don't, because you, when you're a kid, when you're a young person, you don't really know. 
you know, I remember being ripped off and lied to and when I was a, when I was a kid. And, and I knew it was being lied to as it was happening. But because, well, maybe there's some, maybe he's not lying. Oh, no, he is, you know. So, no, so I, I think mistakes make you smarter, make you stronger. So I wouldn't do anything differently. And it actually turned out fine for me. What would you say was the mistake and what did you learn from it? Oh, the mistake? Yeah. Okay. I was in Boston once, and I went to a club. Oh no, I mean, I meant in the, I, I meant in the, in the situation when you hosted the Jay Leno show, and oh, I, I don't know what I would have done differently. I don't know what I could have done differently. Uh, as I said, I didn't have a manager or an agent. Uh, I don't know whether that's a mistake or not. It saved me a huge amount of money just because I didn't have to right. pay anybody. But no, I don't know what I've done. To me, you rise and fall on your own abilities and what people think of you. I mean, I'd like to think that I was funny and I was easy to work with and I uh, never missed a show, you know, didn't throw tantrums. So NBC knew, okay, this guy is pretty reliable. Why don't we put him back in 1130 and we'll, and we'll see what happens, you know. So, And that, that's what happened. So it actually worked out quite well. Have you imagined what your comedy is when, I mean, I'm guessing that you're not quitting, because uh, you show no signs of no, slowing I, I down. No, I mean, when I have my stroke, I'm sure I will. But, <laughs> but have you imagined what your comedy is when you're 82 years old? I don't imagine it's much different. I mean, you try to be reasonably hip to, you know, you don't want to be talking about Reagan's trip to Pittsburgh. People go, what, what? But that's that's the nice thing about going out and working because you, see, comedy, you can't quit. You know, I give Eddie Murphy a lot of credit, man. He is coming back and he's going to do a big Netflix special. It's hard to stay off the road for 15 or 20 years because your instincts are just, you have things you just, you don't even know. You know, I, the way I would practice is I used to say my act and then try to write a, a letter with my, other, with my hand while I talked and see if it made any sense. And I got to the point where I could write a letter and talk, and that allows you to compartmentalize. I can think of an ad lib about this subject while I'm talking about what I'm talking about. So when I turn to that guy, it looks like it just came up with some ad lib, but actually I took a minute or two to just think about what it was going to say, you know? So you've just got to keep doing it. Musicians can go off the road for 10 years and then come back with an album. Oh, my God. But you can't with comedy. Comedy, you've got to constantly keep doing it you know i mean a classic example of that was i did all the material on this last tonight show i did with jimmy fallon and i read a blog where leno said he did all new material i saw him two weeks earlier at the comedy magic club breaking that material in well yeah it's still new material you got to do it somewhere like like somehow it wasn't new because i had done it two weeks earlier you're busted jay yeah i know hilarious very funny very you've funny. been <laughs> doing material more than once exactly well, Jay Leno, I really appreciate you coming well, on. Well, thanks. Can I say my show comes back on on Wednesday night? It's, Don't worry. We'll yeah, we'll, yeah. we'll have time. This well, is there you go. yeah. We'll have tons of stuff, and I really enjoy the show too. It is a really fun well. Thanks, show. thanks. I appreciate that. Thanks for taking the time. I appreciate that it is a fun car show where you do cool, fun car stuff that I want to watch. There you where go. Uh, the host hasn't assaulted any of his employees. No, no, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Jay Leno. His very fun show, especially if you like cars, is called Jay Leno's Garage. It airs Wednesday nights on CNBC. It's also streaming now on CNBC.com. That's it. 
The end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is produced at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He and I offer a million thanks to our friend Raghu Manavalan for filling in for Kevin when Kevin was away. Raghu did an amazing job. Kevin's got big shoes to fill. Uh, This is on you, man. There's competition now, Kevin. Look at me in the eyes. This could be it for you, buddy. Uh, Kevin's got a park update for you. Uh, He's glad to be looking out into the park again, taking (laughs) taking in the sights, sounds, and hustle and bustle of what he calls the big city. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. We had help from Casey O'Brien. Our production fellow is Jordan Cowling. Our interstitial music is by DJW, also known as Dan Wally. Our thanks to Dan. Our theme song is Huddle Formation by the band The Go Team. They are a great band. You should buy their records. Our thanks to The Go Team and their label, Memphis Industries. And before you go, did you know that Bullseye has been around forever and a day? We're coming up on 20 years. I didn't. I started this show when I was not bald. That's how long ago it was. You can't see me, but I'm bald now. Uh, we have hundreds of interviews with incredible guests, so... Uh, Let's say you're interested in uh, the late night wars. Why not check out my conversation with the great Jason Zinneman, uh, the biographer of David Letterman? Or why not check out my conversation with Andy Richter from the uh, Conan O'Brien program? Both of those are available to you free in our archives. You can check all of our past episodes out on our website at MaximumFun.org or find them in your favorite podcast app. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. You can keep up with the show there. Uh, All the interviews from this show are on our YouTube channel if you want to go replay them or share them with somebody on the web or on social media. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.